They're a one-of-a-kind combo, and they're only here on News Talk 770. Roger and Rob, Kincaid and Breckenridge. News Talk 770, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. We're going to talk about to Paul Bernardo coming up after 11 o'clock, who apparently has written the book and is selling it on Amazon. And so long as the book is not about his own crimes, his own murders, he is uh, legally entitled to to profit from that. That, of course, requires people to actually buy the book in the first place. But we'll get into that coming up after 11 o'clock. A lot of news on, on the ISIS front. And in the meantime, Roger, uh, Canadian planes are still part of this anti-ISIS effort for they're not, now. They're not home yet. And they've actually kind of ratcheted up their uh, their airstrikes in recent days. Well, and uh, we were part of this uh, effort in, in Sinjar, as we understand, uh, where Kurdish forces are leading the fight and for now seem to have pushed, uh, pushed ISIS back, pushed them out of this, uh, this, this key northern Iraqi town for now. And uh, in the meantime, we also got word that uh, the U.S. Uh, took out this uh, jihadi John, as he's known. Okay, can I, I've been, I pointed this out on Twitter earlier, but it's World Kindness Day. And that's one of the big things that's trending on Twitter right now. And so is Jihadi John. So it's sort of like they got Jihadi John, hashtag World Kindness Day. Now the world's a better place, <laughs> I would dare say. Uh, well, of course, we've also got these uh, ISIS threats now targeting Russia, vowing to attack Russians in Russia. Yeah, it's a busy time for this uh, uh, this caliphate uh, that they're trying to set up, the Islamic State. Uh, Ryan Morrow is a guy we like to connect with to talk about these matters, National Security Analyst for ClarionProject.org. Ryan, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. So let's start at this operation uh, on Sinjar. Um, there, who, who is leading this battle? Is it uh, is it the Peshmerga or is it Russia or are Canadian planes involved? This is the Kurdish Peshmerga, largely, uh, which is their fighting force. Uh, there's U.S. air support that's involved in fighting ISIS, but on the ground it would be the Kurds. And the reason this is important is because of two reasons. First, from a humanitarian perspective, this is where the Yazidi minority is that ISIS wants to wipe out. Uh, they enslave their, their women. Uh, they do horrible things to, to them. It's really about a genocide. And so this is where they went to flee. They, flee, uh, uh, they fled on top of that mountain most famously last year. Uh, so from a humanitarian perspective, pushing ISIS out of this area is very good. But then also symbolically, uh, because this area got so much media attention, it became part of the ISIS brand. So being able to say that this place that everyone knows that once was under ISIS control is now being taken from ISIS is very powerful. But it's being overshadowed by the other terrorist attacks ISIS has committed in recent days. How significant are, are these setbacks then? Because, you know, we, we've certainly, I, I think, fallen for this before, where it seems as though ISIS is on its back heels. We, we start to get uh, optimistic, and then it seems as though the, those advances are, are quickly undone. There is a pattern where that happens, where we get very optimistic because there's a territory that is lost by ISIS, but then they regroup um, because they've overexpanded their, um, they're stretched out their manpower, and then we kick them out of one area, and then they come together again, and then they retake it, or they expand elsewhere uh, where there's less defenses. Uh, so it remains to be seen whether this is a, a permanent gain in terms of shrinking the territory that ISIS controls, but it's still a big deal. Uh, because ISIS writes our headlines. They know how to, when they put out a video and when they carry out a terrorist attack, they imagine the headline that we're going to have. And that headline, they don't want it to be that they've lost Sinjar. And that's what it is right now. The 
important thing to point out is that even though they're carrying out these terrorist attacks in places like Lebanon and in Baghdad that are getting a lot of attention, that's not seizing territory. That's sending right. in a suicide bomber to blow up civilians. In terms of territory, though, I mean, how how can we expect uh, uh, this Peshmerga force, for example, to keep this area? Are they are are their forces large enough that they can reclaim territory and then keep it, or do they kind of thin themselves out the more land they cover? They can with U.S. air support, and depending on whether ISIS forces have consolidated in a specific area. So the Kurdish forces in the past, when they've retaken areas like Kobani that are very powerful um, and important in places like Syria, they have held on to them. It just requires that ISIS doesn't consolidate all their forces in that one area, concentrate all their power there, um, and, and then with U.S. air support, they are able to hold on to these areas. That doesn't mean that the Kurds will hold on to Sinjar, but it still is a success. Now, this particular town, as I understand, is in uh, northern Iraq. Um, the, the Russians have been operating in Syria. ISIS now seems to be targeting and threatening Russia, but uh, I think a lot of critics of Russian involvement have pointed out that uh, despite what Russia's publicly claiming, Russia really doesn't seem to be targeting ISIS in the first place. So what's going on here? Russia has a very advanced strategy that is basically a supplement to what the Syrian government has been doing for many years. I've written about years before the Civil War even began. And the way that the Assad dictatorship survives is that they acknowledge the world doesn't like them. So what they say is, is well, the alternative is worse. So they stimulate the rise of radical Islamic forces. They let them show their face on the streets and in the media in order to create that dynamic where they can say we are the lesser of two evils. So what Russia is doing is only about 5 to 10 percent um, of their airstrikes are actually targeting ISIS and al-Qaeda. The majority of their air support goes to bombing Syrian rebels who are not ISIS and al-Qaeda because they don't want those less frightening rebels to be the alternative to Assad. As long as they can say that it's Assad or al-Qaeda and ISIS, Assad and Russia wins. Do we have any idea how well that's working for them on the ground in Syria? Well, it, it's been working for a long time, uh, and you can even see it in American audiences. When I am on uh, different media appearances or speaking at different places, very often uh, the, the prevailing argument is, well, we don't like Assad, but if he goes then ISIS and al-Qaeda take over, and then they massacre the Christians, um, and all this hell breaks loose. And there's a lot of truth to that. But we have to recognize that that's a situation that Russia, Iran, and Assad have created. It's I call it the arsonist firefighter strategy, where they light a fire, and then they show up and say, we're the ones to put it out. So how serious then is, is ISIS about targeting Russia? I mean, did they take down this plane? What do we make of the, the video they released this week? It sure looks like it. It was a poor quality video, uh, the first one, uh, that allegedly shows the airliner being uh, blown up in air. But if that's a true video, and I haven't seen an official denial that it isn't true, uh, then that shows that they were expecting it, and then that basically confirms their involvement. Um, and so the consensus is that ISIS did take down um, the Russian airliner right now. It just hasn't been officially confirmed. The second video that came out, uh, does not reference the airliner bombing because it was probably produced before that happened. But it's a threat to Russia. It's a music video, actually. It's a jihadist music video, and it's extremely well produced, one of the best pieces of jihadist propaganda I've ever seen. And they say that they are going to target the Russian mainland, including 
Moscow. And I've got to tell you, it's easier for them to do that in Russia, where 15% of the population is Sunni Muslim, than it is to penetrate the airport security and blow up an airliner. Do we have any idea of, of what, uh, what kind of a grip uh, Russia has on this, progr- uh, on this problem from a, a domestic front? I mean, it's, I don't think Russia is too keen to share intelligence with America, but maybe I'm wrong. There is intelligence sharing that goes on back and forth. We've heard complaints about uh, Russia and the U.S. not really getting along um, in terms of intelligence sharing. Um, and there's been issues in the past where it doesn't get shared to the right person on both sides. Uh, but we're largely, uh, in terms of sh- intelligence sharing, uh, we're going to give them information if we find out about a terrorist attack on their soil. They're going to give it to us because there's a common enemy there. But Russia has faced dramatic, awful awful terrorist attacks on their soil, including attacks and massacres on schools just to, and eliminating children in, in horrible ways. Uh, so they have a major problem on their hands, and it's remarkable that there haven't been more 9-11-type scenarios on Russian soil over the years, considering uh, just where they're located geographically. Now, concerning uh, this this guy, Jihadi John, as he's known, he's he's a British uh, member of ISIS, uh, Mohammed Mwazi, I believe is his name. Uh, word is that he was taken out uh, last night in uh, in a U.S.-led airstrike. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry today uh, saying that we took this guy out. ISIS's days are numbered. There is no future, no path forward, John Kerry says. How significant was this guy? Very significant, because he was basically the spokesperson in the beheading videos. He would always show up and he would say, I'm Jihadi John. They made a point of him saying that he was that he's British, that he can speak English. And so he became one of the major faces of ISIS. And so much of this comes down to symbolism, the idea that there's these individuals who are blessed by Allah and who are kept alive by Allah despite the awesome air power of the United States. And so being able to say that his uh, time has expired at the hands of the U.S., and reportedly we did it without any civilian casualties. He left the building. We evaporated him in the name, in the words of one official, mm-hmm. and it was a very clean, powerful strike. And if we confirm that we killed him, we need to brag and really turn it into a good uh, PR move. And it's got to be more than just one or two sentences, like John Kerry said. One of the advantages ISIS has, and they're frankly better than us at, is in creating that narrative and their narrative of success. So we need to keep this success in the headlines and really push that point in the Muslim world that we got one of your biggest guys. You claim to be protected by Allah. You claim to be the ones that are winning. Well, then what happened when we blew him up? <laughs> that's, that's, that seems like profoundly crass, but it's, it's, it's one of the battlefields in this, isn't it? Social media is a huge battlefield in this entire thing. Right, and you have to catch people's attention. Using diplomatic, polite talk doesn't work. It doesn't create headlines. You have to get people to read and think about what you're saying, and you need to be provocative. And So why is it that ISIS puts out more impressive videos than we do? Why is it their videos are viewed more than ours? The State Department has put out videos that get viewed a few hundred times over several months. That's our propaganda effort. We need to counter their ideology in order to stop them from recruiting. And the reason ISIS has been able to succeed so far is largely because they are still attractive to foreign fighters that join them from around the world. So we need to engage in this battle of ideas, and there's many different ways we can do it. Uh, we just got to open up the creativity of Americans. 
Well, well, Ryan, thanks so much for the uh, for the conversation today. It's uh, it's a big day of ISIS news, and uh, I don't know some of it pretty good, but some of it kind of uh, unsettling in terms of the Russian context. We appreciate you helping us here today. Sure, thank you. All right, take care. That's uh, Ryan Morrow. We'd like to talk to him from the Clarion Project. You can read more from clarionproject.org. I would like to see how the West would ramp up the social media campaign against ISIS, because Ryan's 100% correct. Those are some very, very slick videos they put out. Well, they are, and I mean, it depends who we're trying to target. Uh, I mean, they're trying to target certain people. Are we trying to target those who might be recruited to the cause? Are we trying to send a message to the broader Muslim world that, you know, this movement's going nowhere? Hey, I, I don't know, but uh, it, do, it does seem as though on the, the battlefront of ideas and that, that social media battle that um, we're way behind. So I, I think there's something to that. Let's take a break here. We'll come back. More thoughts, uh, more your reaction as well. Stay with us. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world. Hey, welcome back. Kate and Breckenridge Show. This song, by the way, is about a baby being born, not about a bar closing its uh, closing up shop for the night. Is that um, right? Yeah. You read the lyrics. It's all just, yo, this is your epiphany moment. Oh, my God. Interesting. True. You know, by the way, the other story that, that came out yesterday and kind of got lost in all of this, but I think it's very relevant and should be relevant in, in Ottawa. You've got the uh, U.S. Holocaust Memorial M- Museum, which released a report this week and their own investigation to what's happened to the Yazidis in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum report, citing a preponderance of evidence, has declared this to be a genocide. Now... One of the great failings of Canadian foreign policy in in recent times, we've been told, is our failure to do anything about the genocide in Rwanda. That that seems to be the whole basis of responsibility to protect, that genocide should never happen on our watch. We should never stand idly by when genocide is happening. And and we certainly haven't in this case. And we were part of this this effort in, in Sinjar yesterday. Uh, but as we all know, we've, we've got a government now that feels that this this ever needs to end, or at least this component of it. And I, I just I wonder if that should change the conversation. Well, it should, it's not right? necessarily about stopping ISIS per se, or you know redrawing the the maps in the Middle East. But we've got actual genocide happening that this group is responsible. It changes for. the complexion of it because if at one time there was an argument that. This is an ideological war. This is a problem created by the American intervention over several decades in this region uh, by by taking out uh, Saddam Hussein, leaving this country largely leaderless, uh, allowing the Islamic State to it. Like there's all of this really almost nebulous debate around the situation. But then when you say, okay, well, bar like you know, take all that off the table for a sec. We have a genocide that's occurring. We're one of these countries that said we're gonna we're gonna act when that sort of thing is happening. So if we now have that, and we're getting like confirmation and good solid information out of the region, then do we have a duty to respond, or can we just sit idly by and say we feel our responsibility to protect doesn't apply here? It's interesting. Our new defense minister Harjit Sajjan uh, said yesterday, "Quote: ISIS is a threat, no doubt about that. Should we fear it? No. The Canadian population should have full confidence in all security services to keep us safe." Which is an interesting response because you know there's a the question of what ISIS is capable of doing over there, and what they might be capable of of doing here, and maybe on the latter question, maybe it, it is a minimal threat, all things considered. But what about over there? He says ISIS is a threat, no doubt about it. So there's there's a belief there that, that Canada should be a part of responding to that threat. 
But in what form does that take? Because we're going to bring the planes home. So once we bring the planes home, what is it we're doing? Uh, Sajan said uh, they wanted to make sure that we have good discussions with our allies before we make a decision. And that was on a question of whether to continue this contribution to the bombing mission. So is that even a vague answer? Are the, the liberals prepared to reconsider their their stance on, on bringing the planes home? You know, the one thing that ISIS does well, and Ryan Morrow alluded to it, is, well, you know, with these really slick videos that they produce, like they're pretty hot, right? Has everybody heard this stuff? Like, they're well done, and they they make it look cool, like what they're doing. Hey, this is some cool stuff. Are you a displaced teenager? Do you feel like you don't fit in with your community? Look at at what we're doing. Look at how how bad we look in our military regalia and our hip-hop tunes, right? Like, they make it look like it's something that's appealing. But I think the jig is largely up. For everybody who manages to get out of there with their head on their shoulders and say, I tried ISIS on, it didn't work for me. Like, there's no dental plan, guys. Right? There's no, uh, there's no pension when you're in ISIS. People figured this out with Al Qaeda too, and, and, and with Taliban. It's like, it doesn't, there's no future. There's no, uh, there's, there's no making it to the big leagues. And you're gonna get the, the spoils of riches. I mean, every time you leave the garage, there's a jet overhead that might end your life. And I think that people are, that, that, that people are starting to realize that. But it's funny to me that, that what Ryan Morrow mentioned, that, you know, our State Department in the U.S., for example, or, or here at home, we don't have the social media campaign that says, do you guys, like, really want this? Do you want the life of a pirate and a marauder? Because, like, what's, I mean, I know that maybe you hate your boss, but, geez, man, getting to go to the, see the uh, the James Bond movie and eat buttered popcorn, that's pretty cool. That's something you don't get at the base of uh, Sinjar. Yeah, no kidding. All right, listen, we got to take a quick break here. Back to set up our next hour right after this. That's going to do it for this hour. We're going to talk about Paul Bernardo and his book coming up uh, after 11 o'clock and uh, whether he should be allowed to write a book or certainly to sell a book, uh, which is what he's doing. You can order it on Amazon.com if you're so inclined. But look, there, there are people who are fascinated with this stuff. People are going to buy this book. We'll try to understand why that is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you should uh, be judging your friends because they want to read this book. That's all I'm saying. We'll get into this, like you said, and we're going to have plenty of time for your phone calls, too. After the news to 1130, you're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Never boring, rarely the same. Always ready to hear from you. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Hey, it's me, Roger. That's Rob. We're Kincaid and Breckenridge. We've got a podcast that we record Fridays after our show. Sometimes Thursday, you know, if one of us has to go to Edmonton to watch a hockey game. <clears throat> for example. For example. Uh, but today we're going to slip into the podcasting sauna and uh, do ourselves a little podcast. You'll be able to listen to that on iTunes or at com, which is a website we keep. It's kind of like our diary, but we invite you to read it. Absolutely. we got some open line time coming up after 11 o'clock. And as we've been uh, saying all morning, we got a lot to talk about, not the least of which is this story, which we've got uh, up uh, at our page at Newstalk770.com. There's a conversation going on on the Facebook page as well about Paul Bernardo. And obviously what, you know, things that concern Paul Bernardo are, are of interest, one of this country's most notorious serial killers. Uh, what is he doing behind bars? Well, as we've now learned, he's... 
doing some writing. He's actually written a book, which is a, a fictional book, some sort of international intrigue kind of novel. It's called A Mad World Order. But here's the kicker. You can buy it on Amazon as an ebook. And so, yeah, I, I think to a lot of people, fine. If he wants to write and make up stories, there are worse ways he could be spending his days. But is he making money off this, cashing in on his notoriety? That's problematic. Yeah, and that's the question that I hope to have answered here, is what's the problem, that he's making money or that he wrote a book and it got published? Because if he wrote a book about, here's how I killed all those people, he wouldn't be allowed to do so. He right. wouldn't be allowed to profit from it. Or even if he wrote a fictional book about a serial killer named Ball Pernardo. Okay, I'm with you. you see, yeah. He couldn't do that either. But this has nothing to do with his crimes. But at the same time, I mean, the only reason people are going to buy this book is because it's written by a serial killer. And to some people, this whole murderabilia fascination uh, is real. And, and they, they gobble this stuff up. Now, um, just a, a little, if you want to do this, you want to do your own homework here. Uh, Rob has uh, written up a, a good piece. It's at Newstalk770.com. It's a conversation that we're having on our Facebook page right now, facebook.com slash Newstalk770Calgary. If you go to the Amazon.com website, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tweet this right now. Uh, so if you follow me at Roger Kincaid, you'll get this tweet. Uh, you can go read what 89 people have to say about uh, Paul Bernardo's book. Now, these aren't necessarily reviews of the book. In some cases, they're just messages to Amazon that said, don't you know who this guy is? Why do you have his book up on your website? And the easy answer is that there's no law against it. Let's bring Andy Kahn into our conversation. now. Houston uh, Mayor's uh, crime victim advocate and also a murderabilia expert. Uh, Andy, welcome to the program. Uh, you bet. Glad to be here. Wish it was under better circumstances. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, look, if nobody bought this this book, I guess it would be a non-issue. But uh, from your own experience, Andy, what what level of interest is there in stuff like this? Well, believe it or not, this is a burgeoning industry, which I coined murderabilia, which are items that, that are produced by high-profile killers and serial killers that are peddled mostly on the Internet uh, for profit. So, it's an issue that's gaining gaining more and more and more, and Bernardo, like it or not, is your country's biggest claim to fame as far as getting infamy and immortality from committing some of the most notorious crimes in your country's history. So what, what's the problem here? And I, I don't mean what the problem here, but do, are well, we more disgusted that he's making money potentially or that he's allowed to have this notoriety? Yeah, the big issue is, is he being allowed to profit off of his name that he achieved from committing some of the diabolical crimes? I mean, without the name Paul Bernardo attached to this type of no novel, frankly, you and I or no one else would be discussing it today. But because it's Bernardo, that sends chills down everybody's spine. So the big issue, the crux of the issue is yeah, you can write, paint, draw, doodle, sketch, or whatever, but are you making any money off of it? And the issue from uh, from where I look at it also, I'm frankly kind of surprised as far as from a corrections issues, from a prison's issues, because most prisons, at least in the United States, have mandates, rules, and regulations that you cannot operate a business unless they have approval. So the interesting question is, did Bernardo have approval from the Canadian Department of Corrections to essentially publish a book in which he conceivably could profit from? 
Wow, yeah. Well, and, and the law as it stands in, in Canada, and it varies from province to province, but they're, they're essentially the same, the laws that exist, is that a, a convicted criminal cannot profit off of his crimes. And Paul Bernardo could wow. not write a book about his crimes, uh, but it doesn't preclude them from doing something like this, writing a fictional novel, or as you say, even selling paintings. They're still cashing Correct. in on their notoriety. It's not that much different, is it? No, it's not. And Bernardo, you know, is one of several Canadian high-profile killers that I consistently see have items up for sale by murderabilia dealers. So there really isn't any difference between him writing a book or sketching or making a painting or having a letter sold by him. Not at all. The issue is, can he legally do this behind bars? And what do the prison officials have to say about this? Do they have policies? that allow inmates to essentially operate a business because that's what he's doing right now. He's essentially running a business behind bars. So does Bernardo have approval to do this? What responsibility for this falls on Amazon? And and I understand there have been cases in the past where someone whose name happens to be John Gacy has to say, like, no, no, not that John Gacy. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Actually, yeah, actually, let me give you a great example. Some years ago, we found out that uh, there was Charles Manson CDs that were being sold, including Amazon. It was being sold by a lot of major retail establishments, primarily on the Internet. For example, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, uh, some defunct businesses like Circuit City and Borders were all selling Manson CDs, including FYE and other major retail establishments. And once we notified them that this was happening, most of them, frankly, pulled it off their site. Uh, one, uh, Barnes & Noble's cited First Amendment rights, and once we got a lot of national exposure, they simply removed the Manson CDs. So a establishment like Amazon can certainly take the high road and send a message out that they're not going to give infamous killers like Bernardo a platform to continue to seek the narcissistic ego, and continue to keep their name alive. They can take a stand, and something tells me they'll be held in higher esteem than falling back on saying, well, it's within his rights. Right, but can they be forgiven for saying, look, we didn't realize when this terrible ebook was published on our platform that it was a killer rapist who did it? I mean, the author didn't disclose that part of his past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, unless you really know, you know, true crime or whatever, You know, the name Paul Bernardo, you know, for those that deal in this type of industry, certainly the name stands out. But for, you know, a good percentage of the public, the name Paul Bernardo, frankly, isn't going to ring a bell. So here's an opportunity right now for Amazon to do the right thing and say, no, we're not going to allow sadistic killers, rapists like Bernardo to peddle their wares on our site. It's an opportunity for them. It's going to be interesting to see how they respond. Can there ever be some some positive that can come from this? Uh, there, there was a case a few years ago in Canada, another convicted murderer by the name of Colin Thatcher wrote a book. He was uh, in jail for killing his wife, and once he was out of jail, he wrote about it. Now, the Saskatchewan government moved in, and, and they seized the profits after they passed a, a law regarding this. I just wonder if if the state was able to step in and say, okay, Paul Bernardo's selling this book on on, uh, Amazon and there are depraved individuals who want to buy it. We're going to step in. We're going to confiscate those profits and we're going to put it toward, you know, victims of crime, for example. Would would there there be some positive from from that? 
Yeah, and that's what we try to do is take negatives and turn them into positives. So the issue, uh, you know, presenting itself, this is, you know, whether this is the first, it's certainly not going to be the last. So the question is, if Bernardo is, is allowed to do this, what's going to prevent him from publishing another novel? Or some other Canadian serial killer is going to say, hey, I can do the same thing too. Basically, you've just opened up Pandora's box, and it's going to be up to your country to see what and how they're going to respond. Are they going to close the box? Are they going to send a message out to other killers that they can do the same thing? Uh, Amazon, uh, for their part, appears that they're responding to this. Uh, one uh, uh, Amazon uh, commenter named Patrick Egan says he just relieved this note from Amazon, uh, and the letter reads, Hello, I do understand your concern about supporting the Paul Bernardo uh, on our website. Uh, I truly apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. I've checked with our higher department to see that they, and see that they are receiving several contacts regarding this issue. I've confirmed that we have removed his books from our website and won't be available for sale. I can also confirm that we won't sell or allow other sellers to sell proje- uh, products supporting Paul Bernardo in our website. One of our aims at Amazon.ca is to provide a convenient and efficient service. In this case, we haven't met that standard. Truly sorry, and I hope you'll give us another chance in the future. Thanks for your understanding and patience. We look forward to seeing you again soon. So that's a personal communication between a, a reviewer who uh, challenged Amazon.com on their website about having this Paul Bernardo book up in the first place. So if it's true, then it looks like Amazon is responding to it. But we've seen uh, uh, jurisdictions, Andy, respond in the past by creating these so-called Son of Sam laws. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, essentially. And I certainly got to applaud Amazon for quickly uh, reacting after, you know, within a short time span. And I, I, give, them, I give them a lot of credit for doing that. It's very similar to a battle we had with eBay for several years. eBay used to be the major conduit to allowing murderabilia to be sold on their sites, and finally they relented and backed off, and they don't allow murderabilia, even though it's legal in, in, in jurisdictions. They took a stand. So Amazon is also taking a stand as well, and I applaud that. Does it matter whether or not the, the murder is profiting? If a convicted serial killer paints a... a something, paints a picture and sells it, and he profits, is that just as bad as if I get my hands on it and I sell it and I profit? I do, actually. I, you're continuing to feed into their ego. You, you make them relevant. You make them feel like they've achieved something from committing these horrible crimes. Frankly, they're nothing. They're nobodies in the nation. They're non-entities, with the exception they committed and murdered in a sadistic way. I think you have to look at it like blood money. This is not a novelty item. This represents a cool, a, a cold, vile, despicable death at the hands of someone who is now essentially continuing to seeking infamy and immortality from committing these crimes. But then we get into an entirely different conversation, though, when we talk about films about these historical characters a movie like Zodiac or Son of Sam, for example, whereby the person who committed the crimes does not profit by them, but somebody does profit by the story of the crimes they committed. Well, true, and, we, and here's, here's how we respond to that. Let's take, for example, true crimes, true mm-hmm. crime books, and, and movies that depict what happened in a particular case. Frankly, for the most part, it's taken from public record. It's already out there. It's, already, it's essentially your retelling what is already out there, and it's already been deemed public record. The difference is these are items that are actually produced by a killer, serial killer, high-profile killer like Bernardo that's essentially capitalizing 
on the fame that they achieved by committing these crimes. So there's a big difference between movies and books that are essentially depicting what happened via public record and someone who's actually producing items that are sold by third parties that has nothing to do with the offense itself. All right, fascinating stuff. Andy, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. You bet. I'll be following this closely. I'll bet. And, uh, all right, take care, Andy. Andy uh, Kahn, he's uh, in Houston. He's uh, the mayor's crime victim's advocate. He's also a leading expert on, on murderabilia, I guess uh, a phrase he himself coined. So, yeah, I, I don't think he was surprised to see this because you see a lot of this kind of stuff. These people are, are famous. They have notoriety, and there's an opportunity for them to cash in. They don't even have to write a book. I mean, like we say, Paul Bernardo could just paint some ridiculous painting mm-hmm. and and sell it. Who was the one who did make paintings? Wasn't that Gacy? I thought that was Olson who did that. Clifford Olson. Clifford Olson might have made some, some I, well, we'll, we'll take a commercial break. Here. We'll check on that in a sec. But, I mean, that whole murderabilia thing, um, yeah, was was brought uh, to, to light, uh, to, to bright light, because there was somebody who would painted who was, like, prolific in his paintings. It wasn't just like one or two pieces of art. He'd created an entire marketplace for himself. We'll be right back after this. It's King Cade and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. You really got me going. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You really well, it turns out there are a lot of serial killers who like to paint, make paintings. Uh, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Ng, Clifford Olson, to name a few. Now, I guess, look, if you're stuck in jail for the rest of your life, that's one way to occupy the time is just paint pictures. But again, the people are going to want that. Strangely. Yeah, I, I feel, uh, I don't think I can leap so far as to judge people for being curious about killers in various degrees. So I'll, I'll say this. I won't be buying the Paul Bernardo book for a number of reasons. One is I don't want him to get money. Two, I don't believe for some reason that Paul Bernardo's books are going to be that gripping. Excuse me, Paul Bernardo's book is going to be that gripping. But hey, I don't know. I haven't read it. Maybe it's a real Pulitzer. Maybe it's a real page turner. Maybe. But but this idea, though, you know, whenever we have a, a shooting incident or we have a serial killer who's brought to justice, don't say his name. They'll say, don't give him the notoriety yeah. he wants. It's perfectly natural for for humans to be curious about evil and i think that when people are curious about evil that's not a a, a judgment uh, that's not something that we should judge them for it's natural right. normal paul bernardo is not lacking in notoriety not lacking in publicity he's had it all right i mean he's canada's most notorious serial killer and he's going to get more next year by the way well he's got the opportunity to apply for day parole next year so that brings him back to the spotlight i, I think Stories about individuals like this are certainly relevant. Um, and it's not as though Paul Bernardo put out a press release to brag about the fact that his book's for sale. He went about it very quietly, and it was global news that, that made the discovery. Um, so I don't know that he's looking for publicity in that sense, necessarily. I think he knows that he has it in spades already. He simply wrote a book and decided to sell it, I, I guess, because you know there, there are ways that inmates can spend money. Here's... Here's where everything went wrong. And I got this nailed, by the way. So what you're about to hear come out of your radio is 100% bang on correct. Awesome. Okay. Bernardo should be allowed to write a book. There's no two ways about that. It's a creative expression. The guy's sitting there twiddling his thumbs, and we're thankful for it. He should be allowed to to write a book. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't need access to the Kindle uh, web publishing thing, which, by the way, I'm using right now. I hope to tell you more about that later. Interesting. Um, what, what they should do is they should say, yeah, Paul, look, you got a book. This is a great idea for you. Here's a pencil. And this is a yellow notepad. That's all you need. Go ahead. Write your book. It kind of falls in line with my theory that these guys, these uh, uh, these serial killers that are never going to see the light of day again or, you know, feel grass growing under their feet. They don't need things like computers or pillows. Right. But it's something to keep them occupied, to keep them uh, off the guards hands. I think that's a good thing. So here's a yellow notepad. Here's a pencil. You go ahead and you, or you crayon. Maybe. Ah, yeah, sure. You go ahead and write your book. And when you're done, bring us the pages and we'll staple them together and you'll have a book. <laughs> You can share it with the other inmates. Yeah, or if you, if you want to publish it, throw it out the window. Make it public. And if it if someone picks it up, boom, there you go. Yeah, I, I, I'd be okay with that. So I don't it. know what Thank we can you. do at this point after the fact, because he wrote it. It's out there. The law is the law. We can rush, get our MPs back to Parliament as soon as possible and pass a new law. It's all kind of after the fact. Here's the thing. I mean, I, I don't want to see these casting too wide a net because I, I, I do think it might be worthwhile at times for someone who's been convicted of a crime to want to tell that story. Um, you know, someone who's been wrongfully convicted and is released and might still technically be a convicted killer until that conviction's overturned. Why shouldn't that person be able to write about the experience or go on a speaking tour and talk about the experience? You know, there are people like Robert Latimer. And, and obviously that's a divisive case, but Robert Latimer technically is a convicted murderer. But I think a lot of people would be very interested in paying to see him speak or, or paying to read his memoirs. And he went, he went through a lot. I think a lot of people would, would be just fine with him being able to profit uh, to some extent, given everything he went through. Well, there's a guy, he's, uh, he lives in Edmonton, at least he's supposed to live in Edmonton, and he uh, is a very... Um, curious character in our country right now to the point where some people have built entire web campaigns around him. Uh, he was the uh, star of much uh, news coverage. There's a very long Wikipedia page entry about him. And I think McLean's magazine has even tried to sell a few issues by putting him on the cover with a couple of other ladies named Rennell and Amanda. This fellow's name is Omar. Omar. Yeah. And there's a, uh, I'm sure that there's an appetite to hear his story out there. So should it well, be serious? And again, technically, somebody who's convicted of, of a crime, not necessarily convicted in Canada necessarily, but convicted of a crime nonetheless. And, and should he be able to profit? So uh, I, I do think there are times and places when uh, we, we do want to hear from people who have, especially people, I, I think, if, you know, they're, they're saying, here's how I changed. Here's what I learned in prison. You know, here's where I went off the rails in my life. And hopefully by telling my own story, I can help others. Mm-hmm. So at what point is it unethical, though, for those people to to make money off that? And, you know, you, you often see a lot of times when people like that write books or even when people write books about crime. A lot of times, you know, well, some of that money is going to go to uh, some kind of victim's fund. I, I, I think you need to do that. Well, OK, what about Kim Walker, though? Do you know who Kim Walker is? Kim is uh, serving time in uh Prince Albert, I think, he is from Yorkton, Saskatchewan, and he killed his daughter's boyfriend because uh, he was abusing her and keeping her addicted right, to drugs. Yes, right? yeah. So Kim Walker is uh, there in jail, and, and when Kim Walker was sentenced, there was a lot of us who looked around the room and thought to ourselves, I don't think this guy's a menace to society. And I understand he's got a, he had to go to jail, but does he need to be there? 
That seemed like a justifiable killing to so many of us at the time. Should he yeah. be allowed to tell his story? Yeah, absolutely. But, because, and so that's the problem. Yeah. You cast uh, just a blanket piece of legislation that says all convicted killers shall never, ever profit from anything that's, that's connected to their crimes. I mean, someone like that getting out of jail shares his story. Here's why I did what I did, and here's what I went through, and here's the price I paid. There are a lot of people I think would line up to buy that book. People were donating to his his defense. I think people would be happy to support him because a lot of people support what he did. But technically, he's a, he's a convicted killer. Um, so th- there there you have it. The table is set for this discussion about Paul Bernardo's book. Yeah, I, I don't know that. It, I mean, <laughs> at some point too, there's the whole idea that maybe somebody should read this and tell the world it's a crappy book. You're not missing anything at all. Uh, but but um, you know, we got a lot to talk about now. Is it okay to buy a book that a serial killer writes? Is it okay to buy that book if you know that that person is getting some of the money? Or would you buy that book if you knew that the money was going to a victim's assistance fund? We talked about ISIS with Ryan Morrow. We talked about that uh, very controversial program that we should see soon in Calgary where we give uh, alcohol addicts, uh, people who are addicted to and really harming themselves with non-beverage alcohol, talking about switching them to wine and getting them into a treatment facility. And, of course, the Wild Rose Party annual general meeting is this weekend here in town. We had Jeremy Nixon on our program, the executive director of the Alberta Wild Rose Party, to to answer a few questions, uh, notably why the media is not allowed to go this year. Well, a lot of people uh, pointing to that as, as uh, maybe a sign that it's the same old Wild Rose or speaks to some degree of, of paranoia or secrecy. But as they say, they just want to be able to have some frank, open, honest discussions, and they don't want anybody to be discouraged from, from speaking their mind. So a lot to talk about here, 974-8255. Back with more right after this.